Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It's our second episode in November. Feeling those post-Halloween blues. Yeah, well, it's, it's that time when there's less and less sunlight outside and it just gets harder and harder to wake up in the morning, but uh, we're, we're powering through. Yeah. Soon there'll be Christmas lights adorning houses. Mm-hmm. Christmas trees. Mm-hmm. Every which way. Yep. You won't be able to escape red and green as a combination. Well, I mean, we will once we've seen Mystery of the Wax Museum, <laughs> but... Uh, but that is not what we are watching today. No. Today we're watching The Mummy. From 1932, not 1999, or, gosh, was was it 2017 was the latest one this year? Oh, the one with Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one saw it, so it's not important. <laughs> I mean, I kind of want us to watch 1999 one. Yeah, you've got a strong affection for that movie. I do. It's not really a horror movie. I mean, it is a remake of this movie. It's got the same basic premise. Yeah, but it's it's like an action-adventure. Yeah, it's more like an Indiana Jones movie, really. Yeah. It came in my life right as I was going into the crazy-about-ancient-Egyptian stuff phase of my life. Everyone, I think, has, like, a bit of an Egyptology phase um, at some point. Whether, you know, I think it happens to us all at different times, but certainly that, that 90s mummy franchise... Reinvigorated that. Yeah, it sparked that for a lot of people, for sure. But this is the original... Mummy movie. The first Mummy movie. Yeah. I thought that, similar to what we did for White Zombie, it (laughs) might be good to provide some historical and cultural context to ancient Egypt and mummies and excavation of tombs and (laughs) the British colonial need to culturally appropriate everything. Uh, So I thought I'd turn it over to you so that we could journey back... (laughs) thousands of years to ancient Egypt. For sure. I I find it useful to think about things in terms of a timeline. So when we talk about ancient Egypt, we're talking about Egypt from 3100 BC to around 330 BC. Mm -hmm. Thanks to their quarrying and construction and mathematics and all of these techniques, they were able to build these huge pyramids Temples, obelisks, and more. It's a very advanced civilization in comparison to other civilizations existing contemporaneously. Obviously, especially for such an old culture, there's a lot to go over. So I kind of narrowed what I'm talking about today into the beliefs on death and the afterlife, the rituals around death, um, mummification... That kind of thing. For sure, yeah. I mean, we can't go over a 3,000-year-long history of a culture, right? we got to be a little specific. Yeah. The ancient Egyptians believed people to be made up of uh, different physical and spiritual aspects. And it's these spiritual aspects that are released at death. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in Christian theology... Uh, there's the belief that you have the soul. Once you die, it goes up to heaven. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit more complicated 
in ancient Egyptian belief. Mm-hmm. So one of these spiritual essences is known as Ka. This is the life force. Uh, it's literally like the force that allows you to live because when you eat as you are alive, that sustains the Ka. And then um, at tombs or when you've passed on, there's offerings of food left because the Ka still needs that in order to survive. Okay. Another essence called Ba is the person's personality. This does not leave the body in death, but through funerary rites, uh, it separates Ba from the body so that it can rejoin with Ka, the life force, um, and then live on in the afterlife as Ak, literally translating as effective one. And that's kind of a literal meaning of agency um, to kind of like offer a poor analogy. It's as if like it's a ghost who can come in, enact agency in the living world, but especially enact agency in the afterlife. Okay, so when you die, your life force leaves your body. Yes. But it takes these funerary practices and rites to get your sort of personality to leave your body as well so that it can join back up with your life force and become your afterlife ghost. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But the Ba needs to return to the physical body each night. So that's why the preservation of the remains is so important. Got it. As people might know, uh, the pharaohs of ancient Egypt ruled according to the divine right of kings. Um, They are descended from God. So um, for a long time, it was considered that only the pharaoh had a Ba to then become essentially the effective one uh, in the afterlife. Sure. Commoners would just kind of go into nothingness in a sort of atheist type of way where you just stop existing. Um, And nobles could be granted entrance into the afterlife by the grace of a pharaoh. Okay. But regardless, the Ba can only re-merge with your Ka if the funerary rites are done correctly. And of course with this Ba having a home to return to, um, which kind of brings us to the process of mummification. Right. Yeah, if the worms have eaten your body, you can't go home to it, right? Exactly. So mummification can, of course, happen naturally, and especially uh, in the desert around Egypt. Um, There's enough arid conditions for a process called desiccation to happen and for your body to become a mummy naturally. But the ancient Egyptians developed this process of essentially artificial mummification where they would remove the internal organs, start the desiccation of the corpse through different salts, uh, wrap the body in linen. The heart, interestingly, would be left in the body because that's the center of your intelligence and of your personality. Oh, interesting. And uh, some of your organs would be placed in uh, canopic jars as well, uh, obviously preserved. Mm-hmm. You um, might need those later. <laughs> exactly. And then the body would be stored within a wooden coffin, or more commonly with pharaohs, a stone sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. This process would occur over 70 days from the death to the burial. Okay. Um, Because, especially with, like, using the salts for desiccation, like, you need to dry the body out before you just put it in a stone box and put it in a stone building, you know? Right. So, obviously, with nobles and especially the royal families, we see the wealth and goods that were stored in tombs and in the pyramids, and these would last them into the afterlife. But all burials, regardless of social status or wealth, 
included goods with the uh, prepared corpse. Right, yeah. Included in these going-away packages, <laughs> as it were, was often a Book of the Dead. If you think about the 1999 mummy, um, the Book of the Dead is like this big holy book that contains spells that Evie <laughs> reads from and brings the mummy back to life. Mm -hmm. um, a similar thing kind of happens in this movie that we'll see, um, but it's a series of scrolls rather than like stone tablets or something. The Book of the Dead is actually more of a how-to manual of navigating the afterlife. Okay. So it's some reading material for the deceased. Yeah, exactly. And yes, there were spells included, um, in the sense that the word for spells is ro, uh, which can also mean speech or chapter. Okay. Each edition, for lack of a better word, is completely different because you didn't have, like, publishing houses. Or right. anything like that. So it's custom made for each uh, person. Yeah, with like what um, knowledge you think that they might need in the afterlife. So um, some chapters might give uh, insight as to how to identify the different gods, um, <laughs> how to get through some trials that are coming ahead, especially when it came to passing the trial uh, weighing of the heart. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's this weighing of the heart uh, where the deceased's heart is weighed against um, this feather of truth. And um, if it doesn't weigh as much as the feather of truth, then your heart is eaten by this hippo, alligator, chimera of sorts, and you would just no longer exist. Because gotcha. your heart is gone. Your intelligence and personality is gone. Right. Anubis supervises the weighing, Thoth records the results, uh, he's kind of patron of the scribes, and if you are worthy, your ba can join with your ka into an ak. Right. Osiris is god of the afterlife, death, and resurrection, and he kind of oversees all this, and then once you pass this trial, you go to him for further judgment. It's interesting to note that Osiris was actually the first mummy, at least in mythology. Okay. Um, he was killed by the god Set. When he was killed by Set, he was, like, thrown into a coffin and tossed into the Nile River, so he drowned. And then when the body was found, Set was so upset about this, he, like, dismembered the corpse. Osiris's wife, Isis, collected the body parts, bandaged them back together, and Osiris was uh, then transformed into an auk, and then went into the afterlife and became lord of the afterlife. Okay. So that's kind of like the mythology and beliefs and process undergoing mummification and death in ancient Egypt. As for what this movie kind of takes from it, we will see when we go to watch it. <laughs> but I do know um, that this movie incorporates names of ancient Egyptians in a way to like add historical credence to it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Some of the historical figures that this movie invokes are Imhotep, the pharaoh Amenophis, which is the Greek version of the name Amenhotep, and then Ankesenamun. I'm going to tell you a little bit about who these figures actually were, since this movie doesn't really stick with the facts. Sure. <laughs> so Imhotep 
he lived in around the late 27th century BC. Obviously, dates are very hard to nail down with people like this, but he was chancellor to the pharaoh Zoser. He was probably the architect of the Steppe Pyramid, um, and he was high priest of the sun god Ra at Heliopolis. In death, Imhotep kind of became mythologized and deified, almost to being equated with the god Thoth, who I, I kind of mentioned earlier, he, he records your results on the test, <laughs> basically. Thoth is also the god of architecture, mathematics, medicine, um, of writing. So probably the reason Imhotep was kind of equated with Thoth uh, through this mythologization is because Imhotep was an architect, and uh, he was also directly involved with ending a seven-year famine. Okay. So that's probably why his name went into myth a little bit. For sure, yeah. He has all these great accomplishments, and they, they overlap with what Thoth's sort of uh, portfolio as a god <laughs> is, right? So, Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, he goes by Amenophis in this film. Um, but this pharaoh, his Egyptian name is Amenhotep. It's kind of hard to nail down which one they're talking about, because there's four pharaohs who go by this name. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure it's this one that I'm going to talk about. The fourth Amenhotep changed his name to Akhenaten, and this guy did a lot of history. So if you see the name... (laughs) Did a lot of history. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. If you see his name pop up in Egyptology a lot, there's good reason why. He worked to change the religion of ancient Egypt from this pantheon of gods to only worshipping the sun, so a, a shift towards monotheism. It didn't go well for him in the end. No, it really didn't. But, uh, you know, his reign was around the 1350s to 1330s BC. So, like, a good thousand and some years after Imhotep lived. Yes. Okay. I wanted to be clear on that point. <laughs> <laughs> and the other relevant thing to mention with Akhenaten here is that he had many kids, one of them being Tutankhamun, King mm-hmm. Tut, and also Ankhesenamun. Mm-hmm. So Ankhesenamun is the uh, last figure invoked in this movie. She lived from around 1348 to 1322 BC. She's one of six known daughters between Akhenaten and uh, his first wife. First wife as in like there's a series occurring at the same time. <laughs> first first among wives, yeah. as opposed to first and then a second. Yeah, um, so his first wife, Nefertiti. Ankhesenamun possibly married to her father at one point, mm-hmm. um, as was common in ancient Egypt. But she is kind of most well-known for being the great royal wife of her half-brother, Tutankhamun. Which is also, like, the brother-sister marriages are, like, super, super common in Egyptian royal lines as a way of controlling that royal bloodline. Yeah, and so, like, they shared the bloodline with their father. They had different mothers. And this makes it an easy transition (laughs) into talking about Tutankhamun's tomb as it relates to the mummy's curse. Right. (laughs) Tutankhamun's tomb... I'll be calling him King Tut from now on. Just to make it easier on yourself. Yes. Uh, My speech impediment is not making this easy. Um, So it was discovered in 1922, but 
uh, officially opened in early 1923, and it was discovered in the Valley of the Kings by English archaeologist Howard Carter on this expedition funded by the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, George Herbert. So when this news hit newspapers, it sold like hotcakes. Uh, everyone was very excited. No one had really known about this pharaoh existing. Um, no one really knew anything about King Tut. Um, it was kind of a mystery as well because he wasn't buried in this large pyramid or anything. It was a fairly small tomb in comparison to what uh, everyone else had found pharaohs buried in. And it took them about 10 years to even catalog everything that was found in this tomb. Um, there were over 5,000 items, including a solid gold coffin, uh, the now iconic face mask that you see if you Google Egyptology, <laughs> and much, much more. Yeah, it was the most intact tomb they'd ever found up to that point, right? Yeah, and it's probably because no one really knew it was there. Yeah, because all the famous kings had their tombs robbed. Yeah. Uh, and this guy, you know, his reign was not as well known. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there was evidence of grave robbing having occurred, but I guess archaeologists, through what they do, were able to tell that it happened, like, soon after he was buried. Right. So there's a common, I guess, story around tombs, especially in Egypt, having inscribed curses on the entrance to uh, these tombs, warning that um, if there's anyone who disturbs the dead, shit's going to go poorly for you. Right. And of course this is to especially ward off grave robbers. But, like, you see this often enough and you don't really see much evidence for it, so you kind of just go, like, yeah, okay, and you go in anyways. And the idea of, for lack of a better word, like a ghost story happening around mummies, these stories were popping up since the late 17th century. Okay. So, kind of the earliest one that's recorded is uh, in 1699. Wow, uh, that's really back there. Yeah, Louis Penichier, uh, he was an apothecary in Paris. He wrote an account of a Polish traveler on his same boat who had recently acquired two mummies. This Polish traveler kept having these nightmares of these two specters following him, and the ship was going through storm after storm after storm, and it only subsided when the two mummies were thrown overboard. Kind of more recently, um, Egyptian archaeologist Zahi Hawass... Uh, who's, like, still living. Uh, he's not old or anything. Um, he was involved in excavating two child mummies um, and claims that he was haunted by the children in his dreams. And these nightmares only stopped once these two mummies were reunited with, uh, I guess, their father mummy at an exhibit. Hmm. These stories, you know, the moral imperative in these stories is, hey, maybe don't disturb the grave sites of other cultures yet people just kept on doing it, and that the people telling the stories about, like, mummies haunting people were the Westerners who were impinging on this culture themselves, right? Like, these aren't Egyptian stories saying, hey, stay away from us, they're, you know, stories by Westerners kind of saying this thing that the Westerners are doing is immoral. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, Zahi Hawass is Egyptian. Sure. But um, I definitely see your point there. The idea of a mummy coming back to life and reviving from being dead, the kind of earliest example of this is from an 1827 uh, sci-fi horror 
fiction work from Jane C. Loudon. And you see this kind of reoccurring narrative since then of specifically a female mummy getting revenge on the male desecrator. Okay. So some examples of this, uh, there's an anonymous story called The Mummy's Soul from 1862, Jane Austen's 1868 story After 3,000 Years, and even Louisa May Alcott wrote in 1869, Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse. Right. And the fact that you see like this reoccurring female mummy getting revenge on a male desecrator, um, that same theme coming up in these different narratives. Academic author Jasmine Day actually argues that there's an, an analogy going on of the desecration of tombs and rape. Sure. Which and is I'm, interesting. And I mean coming from authors like... Jane Austen and Louisa May Alcott, who are like more famously known for feminist works. Feminist works, yeah, exactly. But the reason I bring all of this up is because it's interesting that the instances of the curse involving the mummy arising and becoming alive again and enacting revenge doesn't come from Egypt. Yeah, yeah. There's like the traditional Egyptian mythology has nothing about life after death in that way, right? No. Um, the closest thing is with the Ak being, again, literally effective one, you can ask for their help or use, like, ask them to haunt your neighbor or, like, sure. whatever, right? But nothing about a mummy coming back to life. Mm-hmm. From this fiction into fact with King Tut's tomb, um, there's eight deaths attributed to the curse of King Tut. Uh-huh. Kind of the biggest one that kind of made the newspapers freak out, is Lord Carnarvon, who is the person who funded everything. He got a mosquito bite on his cheek, which he then accidentally cut when he was shaving, and then died from blood poisoning from the infection. Four months after the opening of the tomb. Two weeks before his death, there was a letter in New York World magazine kind of talking about the curses in desecrating tombs. So you have this magazine article in people's minds, this really amazing find in Egypt and the funder dying of, like, a mosquito bite, basically. Mm-hmm. So it all seems a little mysterious. Uh, and it certainly didn't help with other people, such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, writing into newspapers suggesting, specifically with Conan Doyle, that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by elementals from the tomb enacting revenge. Yeah. Well, and Conan Doyle had written his own, like, mummy haunting story as well, uh, I do believe, yes. What kind of furthered this story of the curse is uh, when they were doing the first autopsy of King Tut, it showed that there was a lesion on his cheek in near where Carnarvon's mosquito bite had been. Uh Uh-huh. You're so skeptical. I'm I'm... trying to bring intrigue and, like, (laughs) mystery into this horror podcast, and you're just like, yeah, huh? I'm just... Show me the facts, Sarah. (laughs) I'm a skeptic. (laughs) Especially knowing what passed for journalistic standards back then. (laughs) Other weird accounts, uh, besides the deaths, involve um, an anthropologist receiving an artifact from the tomb, and his house burned down. So that's a little weird after receiving this artifact. So, you know, you rebuild the house and then a flood destroyed that house. (laughs) Put the artifact back, dude. (laughs) 
And Howard Carter, who is the person who led the expedition, he had been working in the desert for like 35 or more years. And um, during this excavation, he noted in his journal that this is the first time he saw jackals that were like the visual inspiration for the god Anubis. Mm-hmm. First time he had seen them in the desert. So with like all of this mysterious stuff, that kind of like sets the flavor, sets the tone for the seven other deaths that happened after the opening of the tomb. Um, so I won't go over all of them, but some of the notable ones is um, a little less than four months after opening the tomb, one of the visitors, George J. Gold I, died of a fever after visiting. It should be noted that he was in the uh, Mayan Riviera at the time. Could have just been a, a fever from there. Yeah, and I mean, we've had a few people we've talked about on the podcast who have died from things like poor dental health in yeah. this time period. So, Speaking of poor dental health, Colonel Aubrey Herbert, who was an MP, and he was actually Carnivon's half-brother, he was going nearly blind from poor dental health, <laughs> and post-dental surgery he died of blood poisoning. Um, and that's around eight months after the opening of the tomb. Around 11 months after the opening of the tomb, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed is a radiologist. He x-rayed King Tut, and he died of a mysterious illness afterwards. And about five years after the opening of the tomb, the Honorable Mervyn Herbert, Carnarvon's half-brother and Aubrey's full brother, died from what's been labeled as malarial pneumonia. Okay. But the fact that he was like, the half-brother and full-brother of the two other people who are rumored to have died from the curse, even though it's five years later, that's how he kind of gets lumped in. Yeah, for sure. There's other deaths as well, but these seem the most intriguing. <laughs> it should be noted that uh, Howard Carter, who again led the expedition, he's very skeptical of all of these stories of mummy's curses and everything like that. Um, he died of lymphoma in 1939, the tomb was open in February 1923. It had fully been excavated and all of the goods inside uh, cataloged by 1932. And then he died seven years later, so around 16 years after opening the tomb. Yeah. But his death is also attributed to the curse. Because why not at that point? Yeah. You're just right? adding, on, adding on bodies. <laughs> of the 58 people involved in excavating the tomb... Eight people died less than ten years after the opening. I mean, I, I really want to stress that eight out of 58. Like, Again, that's like, a small percentage. Definitely. But I'm, I'm, I'm giving all sides here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so with the last bits of the findings of this tomb being excavated and documented in 1932... That's the year that this movie came out. Mm -hmm. um, there'd be newspaper coverage about it. And, of course, they would dig up or remind the public all about these deaths, um, the mummy's curse, yeah. all of this stuff. So that's right in everyone's mind when this movie comes out. Yeah, absolutely. King Tut's tomb was such a, a, a newspaper sensation and the uh, sensationalist invention of the idea of the curse of the mummy's tomb and such... Uh, was something that, that really got the public imagination. And, you know, the, the recent completion of the tomb really put it in the front of everyone's mind again. We've, we've sort of said this a few times the last couple of episodes, but the release of Dracula in 1931 had kind of burst open the floodgates for 
horror movies. I mean, certainly we've seen that. We are in 1932, and how many episodes have we done since Dracula, right? Yeah. In the months since Dracula's release, we've seen rival studios and independent producers try their hand at the horror game, but Universal themselves has kept their horror cash cow going with Frankenstein, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Old Dark House, and now The Mummy. Now, while all of Universal's previous horror efforts had been inspired from literary sources, Carl Emley Jr.'s inspiration for The Mummy had come from the completion of Howard Carter's cataloging of King Tut's Tomb in February of 1932, uh, which, as we just said, had brought ancient Egypt and Egyptian curses and all this stuff back into public attention. So Lemley figured this would be a good hook for a horror movie and requested his studio story editor Richard Shire to find a horror novel on an Egyptian theme to translate into film. Shire couldn't find a suitable source, though. <laughs> there wasn't really anything that matched what Lemley wanted in a story, so he hired prolific novelist, playwright, and newspaper columnist Nina Wilcox Putnam to create a story from scratch that could be used as the basis for a screenplay. Putnam wrote in a great many genres. Uh, she wrote romances, westerns, comedies, uh, gothic horror. Um, she wrote plays. She wrote short stories. She wrote novels. Uh, she wrote columns for the Saturday Evening Post. She wrote a children's book series. She wrote comic strips. Wow. Um, she just kind of did uh, everything. Yeah. Um, by 1934, she figured she'd made about a million dollars from her writing. Nice. For this particular assignment, Putman based her story on real-life Italian magician Alessandro Cagliostro. And in her story, Cagliostro had survived the century and a half after his death by injecting himself with nitrates in order to carry out an undying revenge against all women who resembled his ex-lover who had spurned him. Okay. You may have noticed that this lacked the ancient Egypt and mummy elements, though, yeah. that uh, Junior wanted. Because Cagliostro sounds like an Italian name or something. Yeah, he's, a, he's an Italian from the 1700s. Yeah. Yeah. So Shire and Putnam's ideas were discarded, which was when Junior turned to John Balderston. Now, that name should sound familiar to our listeners, because Balderston had written the popular Broadway adaptation of Dracula and had created a similar stage adaptation of Frankenstein to sell to Universal when it made its movie of that property. Yeah. Uh, this left him well poised to make the jump to pitching an original screenplay to Lemley directly. Born in 1889, Balderston had begun his career as a journalist in 1912 and had served as a war correspondent during World War I. He began writing plays in 1916 and continued playwriting while also rising up in journalism, eventually becoming a senior editor at New York World, the newspaper of <laughs> uh, the Pulitzer family. Mm -hmm. uh, now, New York World had been the paper of Joseph Pulitzer, and when he had run it, it had become the archetype of yellow journalism, meaning sort of sensationalist journalism that was less concerned about the facts and more concerned with how many papers got sold. And that's the paper that published the story about tombs and curses two weeks before Carnivon's death. 
Yep. Yeah. By the time Balderston was a senior editor at New York World, uh, it was Pulitzer's heirs who owned the paper. However, in 1931, the Pulitzers sold New York World to the Scripps Howard newspaper chain, which then promptly closed the paper and laid off all its staff. So the closure of the paper provided the necessary motivation for Balderston to make the move to becoming a full-time screenwriter. But his experience as a journalist also made him the perfect fit for the Egyptian theme that Lemley wanted, because in 1922, Balderston had covered the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb for New York World as an on-site correspondent. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and ever since, he had maintained an interest in Egyptology. Balderston used a combination of real Egyptian, mythical, and historical names and concepts, as we have discussed, uh, mixed with purely fictional conceits in order to create a story that was along the lines of his earlier Dracula script. Mm-hmm. This was exactly what Lemley was looking for, and so the film was greenlit for production. As a reward for his cinematography in Murders in the Rue Morgue, Carl Freund was assigned to direct his first feature film as a director. Yeah. Freund was a German Jew born in 1890 and had been working in film since 1905. To remind listeners, he had worked for a cinematographer for a very long time, and some of his notable works included shooting The Golem for Paul Wegener, inventing moving camera technique for F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh, and shooting Fritz Lang's sci-fi masterpiece, Metropolis. Mm -hmm. After coming to America, Freund had shot Dracula and Murders in the Rue Morgue for Universal before getting promoted to director and giving The Mummy. To shoot the film, Freund worked with Charles Stumer, who had shot Universal's Hunchback of Notre Dame. With Bela Lugosi out of favor with the <laughs> Lemleys, the role of Imhotep would go to Boris Karloff who, of course, had proven himself for the studio with Frankenstein and The Old Dark House. Mm -hmm. In between making Old Dark House and making this movie, Karloff had starred in the title role in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's adventure film The Mask of Fu Manchu. That villainous performance finally gave Karloff ample dialogue oh, to, nice. uh, to show off his distinguished speaking voice and establish that he could do more as an actor than just be... Like, a shambling monster. Exactly. Uh, and that led to uh, Universal wanting to put him to work right away in this role in The Mummy, which on paper is more like a Lugosi role, but they now knew that Karloff could kind of do more advanced acting. Yeah, that was my one complaint with Old Dark House, was, like, Karloff was just doing the Frankenstein shtick. Mm -hmm. Like, I want, I want to see more from him, right? So I'm super excited for this. Yeah, exactly. Jack Pierce would create two makeups for Karloff in this film, one for the prologue and then one for the majority of the movie. The prologue makeup was far more uh, involved and was only shot for one day. Pierce based the makeup on the mummy of Pharaoh Seti I, with the makeup being applied from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Wow. And then Karloff shooting in it from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. He called that day of shooting his most trying ordeal as an actor for Universal. Yeah. For the film's romantic female lead, Freund cast Zita Johan as Ankh Essenamen, because as a German from Romania, 
she was deemed to have a suitably exotic appearance. Oh, boy. Yeah. Born in 1904 and having emigrated to the U.S. in 1911, Johan had been acting on Broadway since 1924. She had an active contempt for film acting, uh, but after getting married in 1929, she found herself needing the extra money and began her Hollywood career in 1931 in D.W. Griffith's The Struggle, which was Griffith's last film. That's funny that she's like, yeah, I need some extra cash. I guess I'll do film. Mm -hmm. Johan's dismissive attitude of film as a medium would cause conflicts between her and Freund throughout the shoot. Mm. Rounding out the cast are two familiar faces from Dracula, David Manners and Edward Van Sloan, playing what are technically different roles, but functionally identical to what they were in Dracula. <laughs> uh, Manners had appeared in ten movies in the time since Dracula. Oh my, it's been like a year! Yeah, uh, including the critically acclaimed The Miracle Woman by Frank Capra. Van Sloan had, of course, also featured in Frankenstein after being in Dracula, and since then he's appeared in four films uh, before appearing in The Mummy. It's only been a year! Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. The Mummy opened on December 22nd, 1932. Critics praised the photography and makeup and sort of production design, as well as praising Karloff's performance, but largely disliked the other actors as well as the storyline, which was seen as kind of hokey and over the top. <laughs> the film wasn't an outright failure. It, you know, made money, but it did perform under expectation, uh, although it did fare much better at the UK box office. Maybe because um, the UK has that history of being super into Egypt iconography. Yeah, yeah all the characters in this movie who aren't Egyptian are British. Um, mm. And, you know, there's that connection with the British Museum and stuff like that. It was feared by several studio executives uh, after seeing how the mummy did that perhaps the American public was growing tired with horror already. Mm. Which was a problem considering all these studios had lined up multiple horror films to take advantage of the trend. Yeah. Nowadays we know The Mummy a little bit more from its like remakes and reboots and sequels, but uh, I'm excited to sit down and watch the original with you. Yeah. How are we watching it? Well, as one of Universal's classic monster movies, The Mummy is widely available on Blu-ray and DVD, either on its own or as part of the Mummy Legacy Collection, which includes the studio's other Golden Age Mummy films. Uh, streaming options right now include iTunes and the PlayStation video store to buy or to <laughs> rent. Okay. Um, but there's nothing for it on YouTube right now, so it's not on our playlist. Oh. Well, if people are still interested, they can check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Yeah, and if you want to watch along with us, either pop out your copy on Blu-ray or DVD, or probably iTunes is going to be the most accessible option to yeah. watch along with us. Listeners, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss the film. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff from 1932. 
Sarah, what'd you think? Well, I showed you like Dracula. Yeah, it's basically just Egyptian Dracula, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We made the joke with White Zombie that it's just Haitian Dracula. That's more original than this is. Like, this is more Egyptian Dracula than White Zombie is Haitian Dracula. You I know? mean, it, it's certainly... It's probably because this is the same writer as Dracula. Yeah. But there are definitely, like, a lot of scenes where you're sitting there being like, ah, this is, like, this scene from Dracula. Like, where... This prop is that prop. Yeah, like, where White Zombie kind of took the overall plot from Dracula and then had new scenes. This is kind of almost like a scene-for-scene scene remake in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so what are those scenes, Sarah? <laughs> I will tell you, audience. We open in a dig in Egypt, 1921, with Sir Joseph Wemple, Ralph Norton, and Dr. Mueller, and they have just uncovered quite the excavation. Um, they've found a mummy, a chest, and some other antiquities. They're cataloging this stuff, and in doing so, they analyze the chest, which has this curse on the front. Uh, and this scares Dr. Mueller enough that he's, like, not wanting any part of this and storms out. Sir Wemple follows him to calm him down, reason with him, whatever, and Ralph Norton is left alone, and his curiosity gets the better of him. In the chest, Norton discovers the Scrolls of Thoth, and, uh, in these scrolls is the spell Isis used to resurrect Osiris. As Norton is, uh, Documenting some of the words and mouthing some of the words, the mummy behind him moves and comes alive, and seeing this, Norton goes mad. This mummy, uh, we later learn, is known as Imhotep. Uh, he steals the schools. Mm -hmm. Cut to ten-ish years later. It's 1932. We're still in Egypt, and it's Frank Wemple following in his father's footsteps. Badly. Poorly, yes. <laughs> Coming up empty. A creepy local named Ardath Bay points out the probable location of Anxanamun? Anxanamun's tomb. And Frank successfully discovers her tomb in this location. Everything's excavated and uh, is on display in a matter of a few cuts in uh, the museum in Cairo. Uh, where we see Ardath Bay sneak in and he's using the Skull of Thoth to resurrect Anxanamun. That's not really what he's using the scroll to do, though. He's not using it to resurrect the mummy of Anax and Amun. He's using it to contact Helen telepathically. He doesn't know Helen is the new, is the, the reincarnated. He's summoning Anax and Amun's spirit. Oh, okay, Which is sorry. why she goes into a trance. Okay, okay. Meanwhile, at a party... Helen Grosvenor is with Dr. Mueller. Uh, the only explanation is that... She's a patient of his, and he's a friend of her father's or something? Yeah, her father is the governor of Sudan, and he's British. Her mother is Egyptian. He's a friend of the family. She's a patient, which doesn't make a ton of sense because we don't, like... He has a doctorate in archaeology or something like that yeah, we're told. Yeah, his field of study is Egyptian occultism, which is why in the 1921 bit, he was like, nope, not dealing with curses, yeah. and, like, peaced out. Like, if she was a student of his, it would make a bit more sense, but no, she's a patient. I mean, if your doctor's a doctor of the occult sciences, and you're his patient, you probably need another doctor. Yeah. 
Anyways, so Helen is enjoying the party where everyone keeps asking her about her half-Egyptian heritage. Cross-cutting with this is Ardeth Bay doing this ritual in the museum and cutting back to Helen where she becomes hypnotized to go to the museum. And like Ben and I kind of just said, we understand through this cross-cutting and later in the story how uh, she is Anux and Moon's reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Frank and Sir Joseph Wemple see at Helen see Helen at the museum and uh, see her faint. So they take her home where they meet up again with Dr. Mueller and um, they kind of catch up a little bit. Then they hear about a guard being killed in the museum. This guard had interrupted Ardeth Bay and uh, in the scuffle, Ardeth Bay left the Thoth scroll behind. So Dr. Mueller and Sir Wemple... Sir had, Joseph. Yeah, Sir Joseph Wemple head to the museum to see what's up. Like, there's a guard been murdered? Whatever. Meanwhile, Helen and Frank Wemple are getting cozy on the couch. Everyone comes back again from the museum, uh, this time with the Skull of Thoth, and uh, the men go into the study to talk while Helen dozes on the couch and Ardeth Bay comes to call. So the Wemples have a servant who they only refer to as the Nubian, uh, and is this uh, black servant. Yeah, he's uh, played by Noble Johnson, who was Bella Lugosi's henchman in Murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay. Yeah, so Karloff waves his ring and says some words and puts the Nubian under his spell and makes him his servant because mm-hmm. of ancient bloodlines. I don't know. Yeah, so there's a lot of, like, the history of ancient Egypt in regards to race is fraught with controversy. But um, the Nubians are an ethnicity that exists in southern Egypt uh, and that generally were like a more like working class or servant class compared to the nobility, which was ethnically from northern Egypt. Mm -hmm. And in Ardeth Bey coming into the house, he meets Helen, and then that's when Ardeth Bey, Imhotep, Karloff, uh, makes the connection of Helen being the reincarnation. Um, So then we do a lot of back and forth that I'm just going to kind of paraphrase over. It's this back and forth of entrancing Helen, trying to get the scroll back, using a magical pool mirror to cause Sir Wemple to have a heart attack, and stealing the scroll through the use of the Nubian, um, explaining the romantic backstory between Imhotep and Anaxinumun. Just a lot of, like, stuff that, like, it, it felt like filler, despite it being, like, the meat of the story structurally. Anyways, um, eventually, Helen is overcome by the uh, entrancing spell and comes to, I guess I can call him Imhotep at this point. Sure. (laughs) Comes to Imhotep. He puts her in Egyptian gear, and by this point, Helen is no longer... Helen, she's speaking and interacting with Imhotep as if she is Anaxinamun. And Imhotep explains that he is going to kill her so that she will be reborn as an immortal mummy, just as he. Um, So just as Frank and Dr. Mueller arrive to the museum to try to save the day, uh, the entranced Helen as Anaxinamun pleads to Isis, who Anaxinamun was a priestess, to pleads to Isis to save her, who then calls in some lightning and causes the Skull of Thoth to combust. Imhotep crumbles to dust. The end. Yeah, pretty much. 
So you can probably tell from that plot summary that I didn't really super enjoy this movie. Yeah, you weren't you weren't very invested. You were just like you decided to uh, skip over the entire second act because you were just like, <laughs> yeah, this isn't important. It's uh, not. and like uh, skip over like the flashback sequence that explains like why this plot is happening and what the deal is. Uh, I also noticed that like <laughs> at some point in your plot summary, you gave up pronouncing. Anxanaman's name the way they do in this movie. I just went with the 1999 yeah. movie. Yeah, like, I forget how we were pronouncing it in the intro. I think it was Ankh S. Anaman, which I think is how you're supposed to say it. This movie, they go with Anxanaman. Yeah. And then, yeah, Anuxanamun is definitely how they say it in the 1999 movie. That is definitely the movie I'm more familiar with, so... Yeah. <laughs> I'll just chalk it up to that. For sure. I think the central question here is going to be deciding, like, where does this improve on Dracula, and where does it not improve on Dracula? Like, okay. I think that at times it seems like it's very much like a take-two on Dracula, with the Egyptian elements sort of just providing a new flavor. I mean, you can tell that Balderston's into Egyptology, because he throws in enough references to ancient Egyptian religion... And mythology to kind of sound convincing. Yeah. Anxanamen really was the daughter of Akhenaten, or Amenophis, as they call him in this movie. But her backstory in this movie has her dying before her father, uh, and has Imhotep, some dude who lived, like, a few thousand years earlier, but was a priest, as he is in this movie, as her lover. So he knows that, for example... Like, um, in 1932, the tomb of Anxanamen hadn't been found. So, like, he kind of knows that, like, maybe if you were in the public, you might know some of these names from reading some of the newspaper articles about Tutankhamun, but he's betting that you didn't read any of that shit close enough to really be able to call him on, <laughs> like, making any of this stuff up, right? Yeah. Um, I do think that there are things in this movie that do improve on Dracula. Okay. Primarily... The connection between Imhotep and Helen is much better established and justified by the story than Dracula's very arbitrary interest in Mina. Yeah, I I guess, but for this movie, it just feels like it's reaching so much. In what way? Like that Helen, who just happens to know the people who were involved when Imhotep was found, I just... It she feels... doesn't really know them until she gets involved. No, but... I mean like Dr. Mueller. Oh, sure. It just all feels far too convenient, and so it feels like going overboard to justify it. Yeah, but I mean, how convenient was Dracula that, like, the whole plot of Dracula just revolves around he's decided to do this because they're his next-door neighbors, and they happen to be running a sanitarium where the guy who sold him the house is, like, interred at, right? All of these movies revolve very heavily on coincidence in order to justify why, like, the same five people are the only five people in, like, an entire city in these movies. You know, by having this reincarnation plot where Helen is the reincarnation of Imhotep's lost love, it justifies his interest in her and his obsession with her much better than in Dracula, where he kind of, like, he just, like, Dracula just kills Lucy and is like, all right, fuck you, and then, like, suddenly becomes obsessed with Mina, with this long, drawn-out thing where he's going to really make her into, like, a full vampire. And it's like, mm, why? Like, aren't there other... Like, once Van Helsing figured out you were Dracula, maybe just 
start sucking the blood of one of the many other women in London, right? Fair so th- So this movie does, like, a better job with that. I also think it's retrospectively interesting that when it came time for Francis Ford Coppola to make a Dracula movie, yeah. and he wanted to give Dracula a better motivation for why he cares about Mina, he basically stole this reincarnated love interest thing that we see for the first time in this movie. So that, I think, is an improvement on Dracula. Yeah, that's fair. Another thing that I really like in this movie is, um, unsurprisingly, I think, it's very visually engaging. Uh, I think there's plenty of really great shots and lighting throughout this movie. Carl Freund sort of perfected the glowing eyes hypnosis shot that he invented for Lugosi in Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think the iteration of it that we see in this movie is definitely the best version of it we've seen so far, where it really doesn't look kind of as awkward as maybe it has in some of the past versions. I feel like I want to contest you on that point about this movie. Like, sure, the glowing eyes part, definitely, but the rest of this movie having striking lighting. So I think the problem becomes that, like, I don't think Carl Freund has a clue how to make dialogue scenes engaging. Okay. Like, I don't think... I think the movie falls very flat once anyone starts talking. Yeah. Um, like, this movie's direction is one of the major reasons I doubt the persistent rumor that Carl Freund ghost-directed Dracula, because <laughs> the performances in Dracula are much superior. Where this movie is good is when it is relying solely on visuals. So the scenes with Karloff as Imhotep in the museum at night... Mm-hmm. Um, the flashback sequence to ancient Egypt, the opening scene of the movie in 1921, that stuff really works well. Like Dracula, this movie probably has too many scenes of people standing around talking in offices or sitting rooms, mm-hmm. and none of those scenes are very interesting at all, either in the way they're shot or in the performances the actors are giving. So those definitely drag down the movie. For me, I think my disappointment with this movie comes from, as we're currently discussing, it is a rehash of Dracula, practically beat for beat. I don't feel like there's enough differences between this and Dracula, Um, even with its own shot style. Like, it feels very bland a lot of the time, Um, and I think your point about not knowing how to shoot dialogue scenes is a really great point. Like, if we think about this movie compared to White Zombie, where, like, we had that one scene in the study where, like, the camera's moving around and starts and ends behind that guy's back, compared to this, where we have quite a few scenes of people just talking in a study, and it's just like, it feels like a stage play. It feels like the boring parts of Dracula. And I think the reason why it's a bit of a letdown for me from Freund is because, like, here we have this guy who has been involved in so many films that have pushed their respective genres, but also film as a medium further than where it was before. And then we get this, like, middle-of-the-road kind of film here. For sure. And, like, I think the other reason why I, I feel this way is due to the creative choice to have all of the horrific stuff happen off screen? I mean, I think there's more horrific stuff on screen in this movie than there was in Dracula. Because Dracula (laughs) always cut away before he 
you know, bit anybody on the throat. This movie, we see, like, Boris Karloff disintegrate before our very eyes at the end of the movie. I guess I wanted more, though. Mm. Like, we cut away when the guard at the museum is getting killed. Or we don't cut away, it's, 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 it, but it's in black. It's in darkness, yeah. The lights go out and we just hear his, his, his screams. screams. Same with, like, the dog dying. Right. Uh, this, yeah, this movie would be on the list of... Does the dog die? Yes, the dog does die. The dog exists solely to die. It's set up like one scene before, hey, she has a dog, and then in the next scene, that dog is dead. Yeah. With all of this stuff not happening, like, on the screen, it just adds to that feeling of of blandness. Um, And I I feel like maybe this level of horror might have worked in the 20s, or even, as you said, with Dracula in 1930, 31, but not in a post-Jekyll and Hyde, old dark house, or even Murders in the Rue Morgue and Freaks kind of world, where we have had boundary-pushing films in this genre. Which, I, like, I mean, all of these films are happening so quickly, yes. so I can't really blame Foyne for, like, not being on the up and up, you know? But, like, to me, as an audience member, this is how I'm feeling. I wonder if... Because we've talked a little bit about how Murders in the Rue Morgue and Freaks kind of pushed over the line of what people were comfortable with. And I wonder if the tepidness you're feeling in The Mummy is sort of an attempt to, like, rein back a bit uh, to what the tone of Dracula and Frankenstein were because those movies were such big successes. I think that's a really good point. I think it's also worth noting that the two films that I felt a bit more satisfied in the horror Murders in the Remorque and Freaks are these examples that the public was, like, not ready for. Mm-hmm. But then we also have Dr. X. Sure. Um, even Old Dark House, which was our last film, felt like it was doing something more here. It's probably also because we've had a slew of films that have kind of been pushing Every so often. Mm-hmm. And we've had a couple films like Vampire, Murders in the Rue Morgue, where it was pushing while still looking back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this movie just feels like it's... I, I know that this might sound like an insult, but a bit middle of the road. I don't think this is a poorly made movie per se. But you definitely get the feel of, here's more of the same. Yeah. Right? You liked Dracula, here's some more. Right? It's it's very much about hitting beats of, you know, what has worked in the past and just giving the public more of that. That being said, I do want to call out some bits of the movie that I think are genuinely fantastic. There are sure. there are a few scenes I really enjoy. Uh, first up, I think the 1921 prologue is basically a perfect little horror short film on its own. Uh, yes. In in many ways, it's superior to the rest of the movie that follows. You could have that just sequence pulled out and just sitting on its own, and it would be great. Uh, That that bit, just the the camera work in there, the performances in there, the editing in there, the tension, um, the actor who plays Ralph Norton, who gives probably one of the more convincing examples of someone, like, going insane with horror that I've ever seen in a movie. Like... That guy needs to be in adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft short stories when the lead characters have to go insane because they saw Cthulhu too many times, right? <laughs> like, you know, the way that Karloff slowly wakes up and, like, walks out and, like, 
the last shot of that scene being his handprint on the, the desk and stuff. Like, I really think, you know, I was watching that scene going like, yeah, this movie's great. Like, this is better than Frankenstein. And then the rest of the movie happened, and my opinion of the movie kind of, like, slowly went down the longer the movie lasted. Yeah, totally agree with you. Mm. You glossed over it, so I'm guessing that you didn't like it. But I really like the sequence where Helen goes to Ardeth Bay's and he has a magic pool that he can make images appear in and we get the flashback to ancient Egypt explaining how he was once the high priest and she was once the princess and then she died and he was sad so he tried to resurrect her and that was super blas- yeah that was super blasphemous so they wrapped him up alive and buried him alive as a mummy the sequence that we see of all of this in the pool what I really think is great about it. For one thing, I'm glad that we actually get a visual scene, that it's not just a monologue. That's an example of the movie trying to get out of this stage play dynamic of people just talking. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. The other thing that I think is really great about that sequence is it has this weird, I think, power that it acquires through using a very clever trick, which is it's a scene taking place in the past, So it's shot like a silent film. Yeah. Like Karloff's narrating over it, but the actual visuals we're seeing are basically like a silent film in style and performance, and they have no dialogue. It's perhaps like equivalent to the modern trend of like when people do a flashback and it's in black and white. Yeah. In 1932, we do a flashback, so it's a silent movie. Um, But I thought that worked very well. Yeah, I kind of glossed over it because I felt like... I, I, it felt like it slowed things down for me. Like, I, I had picked up already from, like, the dialogue and the way that the movie had been constructed already that, yes, Helen's an ox and a moon reincarnation. Yes, I get that, like, you did all this stuff because you love her. I get it. The one shot that I do appreciate from the flashback is when we see them wrapping Karloff yeah. in the linen. Yeah, yeah. Um, he because, is, uh... like, you see his eyes and he's freaking out. And yeah. it's it's good. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good shot. Uh, so, like, I, add, I, I like that that adds a bit more horror to this otherwise seeming, like, if you were just looking at this one particular sequence of the flashback, it would seem like it was just, like, a tragic love story, but no, Mm -hmm. there's horror there. I think your comment about it slowing things down because you've already figured out what's going on is something where you have to kind of examine media bias from being a modern human versus someone in 1932. Uh, And the reason I say that is because this reincarnated lovers plot is a really hoary old cliché Mm-hmm. in 2017, but this movie's the first time that that plot was done. Ever? Yeah. Like, this movie is what invents that cliche. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I assumed that it had been a thing, like, in some form of media before this. No, this is the... This is where Egypt and reincarnation get, like, married as a cliche, when there's nothing about reincarnation in... Egyptian religion or mythology. It's here so that it works for the plot of this movie, but after this, hey, are we in Egypt? Are you Hawkman? Great, you're the reincarnation of this Egyptian guy, or whatever. (laughs) Like, it just becomes this cliche. As much as, like, I get the complaint that 
watching the movie, you've already figured it out by that point. I can see where a 1932 audience would need the exposition because they haven't seen this version of this story before. Okay. The last scene that I think does work well in this movie is towards the end. Uh, it's the scene where Imhotep resurrects Anxanamen's spirit. I guess to use our research for good, it's her ba. Because, like, her Ka's dead, but her Ba's clearly getting reincarnated through all these people. Um, anyways, so he re- resurrects her within Helen, right? Yeah. She has this whole scene where she realizes, kind of slowly and with growing horror, the fate that he has planned for her, and she wants no part of it. I really like that whole sequence because Imhotep's been drawing Helen into his web hypnotically, throughout the film, and she can't resist his power and all this kind of stuff. But once he actually turns her into the person that he cares about, like, she wants no part of this. She's like, this is some crazy necromancy shit, and I don't. Like, this is bad. (laughs) And that kind of horror of her recognizing what's going on, as well as kind of the dramatic irony of the fact that she's going to resist him, makes that sequence um, work very well for me. Yeah, and I think... Having that difference where in 1999 movie, an accident like, is just wanting to come back just as much mm-hmm. helps make that movie an action adventure. Like, there's very clear, like, heroes versus villains. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in this movie, it, has, it works to support it being horror and yes. horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the 90s Mummy, bringing things back from the dead is just a cool superpower. Here... It's like a blasphemous, horrible act, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why this is a horror film. Because otherwise, like, the 1999 one is a pretty spot-for-spot spot remake. Yeah, I mean, it invents a lot of new characters. You know, it turns shitty, shitty Frank Wemple uh, into Brendan Fraser's character, you know, and it turns really kind of boring Helen into um, Rachel Weiss's character. Like, it it definitely fixes a lot of things that way. Speaking of how bad some of the characters are in this movie, (laughs) Edward Van Sloan's basically the exact same here as he was in Dracula. It's it's the same character. Um, And even he seems a little bored by it. Yeah, yeah, he's not giving it the same kind of attention that he gave Van Helsing. Um, David Manners might actually be worse here than in Dracula? I was gonna say he was a little better. Okay, weird. But, like, still really bad. I mean, he's so similar that maybe we're just, like, splitting... Hairs? Yeah. I think my thing is, even if Manor's performance is better, I think the character is worse. Yeah. Like, so Jonathan Harker was already engaged to Mina when that story began, but Frank Wemple falls in love with Helen literally at first sight, and then is kind of aggravatingly insistent upon her when she barely even knows him. He falls in love with her because she's Egyptian she, in a well, weird kind of way. Right? Because like, he, he yeah. confesses that when he saw the face of the mummy in Oxynamun, he kind of fell in love with her a little bit. And because she is like the reincarnation that, like, at least the audience knows this, is it just because she... Looks like an oxen moon that you're Yeah, like into he her? loves her for the same reason that fucking Imahotep does, right? Like yeah. no one likes her for her. Like his devotion is stated in the plot to be needed in order to tear Helen away from Anxanamen and Inhotep 
but ultimately, like, it's a pretty rotten choice between the two of them. Like, if you had to choose between Frank Wemple or Imhotep, like, they both kind of suck, right? I think I'd go with Imhotep. Oh, man. Wemple also, like, when he's not, like, insisting upon Helen, his other scenes just sort of paint him as, like, a spoiled piece of shit. He's pouting because the museum took all of his stuff, and it's like, dude, that's why you were in fucking no, Egypt. No, he's, he's specifically pouting for racist reasons in that scene. He's specifically pouting because the museum that took all of the stuff from the Anxanamen dig is the Cairo Museum, not the British Museum. And it's oh. the Cairo Museum because they were led to the tomb by Ardith Bay, a native Egyptian. So what he's pissed off about is that Egyptian artifacts dug up by Egyptian labor that they were led to by an Egyptian are being shown in an Egyptian museum, not a British one. Ah, uh, I misunderstood. Yeah, he's being a racist piece of shit. The part, Rather than just a piece of shit. Right, the part where he's being all pouty is when, like, before Ardith Bay shows up and they're like, his dig has been completely unsuccessful. And you get the feeling that he doesn't even really, like, want to be an Egyptologist. He's just doing it because it's something his dad did. Like, his dad feels a lot more into Egyptology. He's got the same kind of dismissive attitude that Jonathan Harker did towards Van Helsing. But here it's, like, with a touch of racism. Yeah. Right? Frank Wemple sucks, man. Wemple. Helen is a little boring. Yeah, Helen exists. She yeah. she is on the screen. I don't know how much of this was Zita Johan's sort of disdain for the project coming through, but she has no screen presence. Nothing. She's a flat batch of nothing, which again, like, is so harmful in these movies where, like White Zombie, we have to believe that people are so obsessed with her that they're willing to kill for her or defy gods for her, and she's just kind of there. Yeah, I, I was just very bored by her. Um, the only actors that I was actually, like, intrigued by was the guy who played Norton at the beginning and Karloff. Like, Karloff does a pretty good job. I, I'm really happy he got to do more than just a Frankenstein shtick here. I, I feel like, like, I'm glad he got to do this role because I think it kind of shows how he can't just fill Lugosi's shoes. Yeah, that's He doesn't have the charisma sure. that mm -hmm. Lugosi has. Yeah. At least yet. And the reason I say that is because, like, we've seen a later horror movie called The Black Cat, where, funny enough, Karloff and Lugosi are co-starring, but Karloff has a different kind of charisma on that screen versus his... Like, I feel like he's resisting doing the Lugosi charm in this movie because he knows that he's Karloff. Mm. You know, he can't... By this, I don't mean, like, he doesn't have the skill. I mean, like, he want, he doesn't want to do someone else's thing. Sure. He wants to be Karloff. He's sure. older. He has been in this business for a long time. He's finally just getting his breakout role and some notoriety. And he doesn't want to just start doing someone else's shtick rather mm -hmm. than just the Frankenstein shtick. He kind of wants to do his own thing. And so I'm happy that he got to do this role because I think it's a step towards being able to do his own thing as we see in later films with him. What's happening with his role, and I think unfortunately it's to the movie's detriment, is there is a conflict between how the part is written 
in terms of structurally in the story versus how Karloff is playing it. I think mm. Karloff is giving a very good performance, but Definitely. you are you're 100% right that he doesn't have the charisma of Bela Lugosi. The problem is, I think this character needs that charisma to be convincing in the plot. What Karloff does well is Ardeth Bay is very evocative of an ancient undead figure, right? Like moving slowly, speaking slowly. He's wary of human contact as if like he might crumble at the slightest yeah. touch. Um, you, you believe that he's undead. There's a kind of eeriness to the performance, uh, along with Jack Pierce's very effective makeup that really makes you feel like the bullseye that Karloff's hitting with this performance is the uncanny nature of the undead as opposed to the charming hypnotic lure that Lugosi was. But that hypnotic lure is kind of necessary to the story, right? Yeah. Like, when Dracula brings Mina under his spell, you could believe that she would succumb to him because the Count has a magnetic personality. Um, Ardeth Bay is so devoid of inflection and life, he's so convincingly undead that there's no sex appeal to him at all, and so it makes his hypnotic pull over Helen and the film's romantic elements much less engaging. You know, like, Helen's into him and ready to just go with him from the moment she sees him, and that's kind of hard to believe with the way that Ardeth Bay is, which is basically like a walking corpse. Yeah. When Ardeth Bay matches wits with Dr. Muller, it's less exciting than when Dracula and Van Helsing do it, because even though there's dialogue where Muller insists on Imhotep's immense, unstoppable power, you get this feeling like a stiff wind could, like, defeat Ardeth Bay. I mean, he destroys that guard pretty efficiently, right? So I feel like it's kind of like uh, choose when <laughs> you unleash that, but, like, it's kind of spent once you do. yeah. It's just that, like, he's so effectively lifeless in his performance that there's none of, like, the hidden power that mm. Lugosi had as Dracula. But what is effective is Karloff radiates this kind of quieter, contempting malevolence throughout Menace. the movie. Yeah, you feel like he, he holds all the characters in this movie in contempt other than Helen. Yeah, what makes all of this that we've been saying like even more disappointing is how really flat and tepid the climax of the movie is. Yeah, the characters don't even do get anything. to do much. Like Frank and Dr. Mueller show up um, just in time to see Isis come in. Well, not even come in. Her statue arm moves and like presumably lightning or at least a spontaneous combustion of the scroll occurs and then that's what saves the day. No one does anything. And like maybe that's also why it feels so much to me that like deaths and horrific action happens off screen because like when it is on screen like in the climax it's just kind of eh. Yeah like seeing Karloff's face decay into a skull through dissolve shots is pretty cool but the rest of the climax feels very hokey and small scale with the way that it's kind of just like four people in a room. The way it's shot makes it 
feel like maybe they ran out of time near the end of this movie because it's not really set up in any kind of engaging or interesting ways. And then, yeah, as we've said, like, Wemple and Mueller are totally ineffectual, which makes you wonder what the point of having them in the story was this whole time because ultimately Imhotep's defeated by uh, Anks and Amen praying to Isis. Yeah. Like, it's very literally a deus ex machina. Like, uh, (laughs) an old Egyptian goddess comes into the story and strikes the villain down. I mean, hey, great on Anks and Amen for having the agency to pray to her goddess and get some divine intervention here. But, I mean, the boys are totally useless. Yeah, I completely agree. One thing that is kind of noteworthy, maybe, is... The Mummy has perhaps the greatest use of music of any sound horror film we've seen to this point. Like, That's funny, because you, you ribbed it when uh, it opened with Swan Lake again. Yeah, yeah, it definitely opens with Swan Lake again. Um, <laughs> but, like, White Zombie had a lot of music in it, but it was all library tracks. Yeah. Uh, this movie's music is composed by Universal contract composer James Dietrich. Mm-hmm. Um And he provides a lot of original pieces to go over the scene transitions. um, And also, thankfully, to go over the flashback sequence, because it's silent. Yeah. um, Which helps the mood of the film considerably. There's no music under any of the dialogue scenes, but it's there kind of the rest of the time. And I think it's very helpful in setting the mood of this story as belonging in the horror genre. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Alright, so let's talk about racism. The way that the mummy engages with the colonialism of Egypt, I think, is very interesting because as a modern viewer, you find yourself wondering, like, who you're supposed to be sympathizing with. Yeah, Ardeth Bay calls the monet a little bit about, mm-hmm. like, digging and taking these antiquities from the Egyptian desert. He has a line that's like, Egyptians aren't allowed to dig, only foreigners. Yes, um, when they ask him, you know, he's discovered the location of this tomb, and they're like, well, why don't you just go and dig it up? And it's like, well, yeah, uh, we're not allowed. And and I think there's something, like, very sympathetic about that line reading, mm-hmm. you know? And so Egypt was officially independent in 1932, but it was still under very heavy British colonial influence at the time. You know, when you compare the way that Ardeth Bay talks about his native land with the very haughty racism that our hero, Frank Wemple, has, yeah, it makes it somewhat easy for a modern audience, I think, to be rooting for sad old Ardeth Bay over spoiled brat Frank Wemple. Yeah, even Helen uh, kind of calls Frank on it a Mm -hmm. little bit. She's like, why did you dig it up? Like, why didn't you just leave it alone? Yeah. The history of Egyptology as a field is fraught with racism. Yeah. Um, And this film can't help but sort of find itself in the deep end of those conflicts over British and Egyptian and other cultural identities, even if those issues aren't this film's main concern. Yeah, it's Um, just kind of stuck in the middle. Exactly. Like, there's the fact that um, one of the ways they try to justify Helen's interest in Ardeth Bay is they give her this character trait where she's not into modern Egypt. 
she's super into ancient Egypt, which she calls, like, the true real Egypt. Mm. And there's, like, a shot where she, like, is on a balcony and she sees the pyramids, because uh, they're in Cairo. And she's like, that's the real Egypt. Uh, and then she, like, looks over Cairo and sees all the, um, like, minarets and stuff. And she's like, not this, you know, modern Egypt or whatever, that comes off as very um, dismissive of the Arabic culture in Egypt. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you've got, like, the weird stuff with uh, the Nubian servant who Ardith Bay, you know, mind controls and stuff. And, you know, even in the flashback scene in Egypt, there's this weird hierarchy of casting going on in that flashback sequence where, like, Imhotep and Amenophis and Anxanamen are all played by clearly white actors. And everyone else is black. Not everyone else. Like, there's some sort of middle-tier, like, nobility and servants who seem to be played by maybe brown-skinned actors who are more, like, ethnically accurate to what they're doing. But then, yeah, all of the, like, clearly low-slave servant characters are black. And it's it's just kind of like, there's just some stuff going on here. Um, I will say that there are points where Sir Joseph Wemple speaks in Arabic with some of the workers, um, I think, like, some police or the guards or something mm -hmm. like that. And I like that it was, like, actual, like, Arabic language, mm -hmm. not just, like, speaking English or, like, something yeah. like that. I mean, you get the... It's sort of a shame that, like, Joseph dies. I like him so much better than Frank. <laughs> yeah, because you get the feeling that, like, Joseph Wemples worked very hard his whole life to be an Egyptologist. He has a really good attitude in the prologue scene where he talks about how science is about the small discoveries and, like, doing the dirty work and, like, doing the due diligence, not the, like, big sensationalist stuff. And you get the feeling that, like, he's very respectful of the Egyptians who are around him. Uh, when he meets Ardith Bay, his first reaction is to invite him over for dinner, whereas Frank's kind of got that, like, why is he even here? Like, yeah. and Joseph's like, because uh, he's the guy who found all this stuff for you. Like, Frank Wemple as a hero is kind of just the worst sort of asshole who's just been handed, basically, a British Museum field expedition on the strength of who his dad was. Doesn't even like any of these people. Ugh. But, yeah. like, so this is what I mean. Frank Wemple's the hero, right? So, like, intellectually, you have to feel that the expectation of a 1932 audience would be that they would be sympathetic to his point of view, that, like, when Frank Wemple goes, like, oh, you know, friggin' brown people, ugh, that, like, everyone in the audience would be like, yeah, ugh. You know, and that just is... It's very upsetting. Yeah. I mean, like, even if you as an audience member in the 30s, were still feeling on the side of Ardith Bay when Imhotep is still willing to turn an Moon, even when she's saying, like, hey, dude, don't want this, I think that's enough for you to still, like, go with the rest of the horror. Oh, for at sure. At least for the climax. For sure. Like, Imhotep's definitely a villain. You know, I'm not trying yeah, to... Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm just saying that, like, even if you were having reservations by the end you're on the side of defeating the villain. Yeah, like, he's not, you know, I'm not trying to crack.com, like, <laughs> Imhotep was the real hero in The Mummy <laughs> kind of stuff right now. Um, I'm Hot just saying, takes. That, yeah, I'm just saying, it, uh, you know, Frank Weppel sucks. Um, <laughs> Hot takes on a 1930s movie. Yes. 
as much like I do feel like this movie does improve on some stuff in Dracula. I think the reason why it feels so lifeless to us is partially because it's coming so soon after Dracula, but also that it's like the same studio, the same writer, much of the same cast playing essentially the same roles. So even in those areas where it might be sort of improving on the previous model, it ultimately ends up just kind of feeling very repetitive overall. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to move into ranking? Yes. So, Sarah, I have a very small range for the mummy. I do, too. Basically, like, I'm not sure where to put it. I don't have a spot, but I have pretty close to a spot. I, I just, um, I need to discuss maybe one thing. Okay. Um, so what's your range? Well, my general feeling of this movie was that it was fairly middle of the road, so mm-hmm. my range is fairly middle of the list. Okay. The highest I would put it is below Genuina, uh, so it entered the list at 21, mm. um, and the lowest I would put it is uh, above the Bat Whispers, sitting at number 23. Oh, wow. So there's Genuina, the Bat, the Magician, Bat Whispers. Okay. So you're you're a fair bit lower than me. What I couldn't decide for myself was whether I liked this better or worse than White Zombie. Okay. I found this movie pretty comparable to White Zombie. One is Egyptian Dracula, and the other is Haitian Dracula. Um, I just couldn't figure out which I liked more. As you can tell, I like White Zombie more. Yes, we can see that. So yeah, I was... Basically, my range was to either put the mummy above White Zombie, below Hands of Orlac, or below White Zombie, above the original Student of Prague. That's where I was looking. So mm-hmm. that's kind of quite higher than where you were. Because I definitely felt like, in terms of as a horror movie, that this movie was better than the original Student of Prague, or Eerie Tales, or Genuina. Now, you brought up in the discussion Dr. X and Murders in the Rue Morgue as being better uh, than this, and... Even though there's there's some problems with Murders in the Room Org, I see your point about that movie being willing to push things further, whereas this movie felt very safe. Yes. Um, and I mean, I, I didn't get to make this point earlier, but like, it's this guy's first time directing. Mm-hmm. I can understand the impulse to play it safe your very first time. Mm-hmm. That being said, Horror as a genre is typically boundary-pushing in some type of way, and this does not do that. Mm. That said, like, I don't really feel comfortable with ranking this below Genuina. After the discussion, I'm now comfortable with sort of looking below White Zombie, but above Genuina is kind of how I've readjusted. So what is your um, feeling of comparing this to Genuina? Why, why don't you feel comfortable putting it below? Um... Because even if this movie's very safe, this movie's very competent. It has those standout scenes that I mentioned that are all really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we're in between those standout scenes, the movie's doing its job. Everybody's doing their job. Everything's working, you know, just fine. The story makes sense. Everything kind of holds together. Genuina um, doesn't hold together and isn't very effective for me. I don't think the horror in Genuina works as well as the horror in The Mummy. Uh, When The Mummy is being scary, it is scarier than Genuina. And you can't even really make an argument about Genuina, you know, pushing boundaries too much, considering that its entire avant-garde look is just copped off of Dr. Caligari. So that's sort of my feelings there. 
when it comes to Murders in the Room Morgue, it's like, there's definitely some stuff in Murders in the Room Morgue that's more transgressive, but I feel like The Mummy is stronger as a whole. It doesn't feel as fragmented and piecemeal and side trip into pastoral and all that kind of stuff that Murders in the Room Morgue has. So that's kind of my difficulty in those two. Okay. So for me, the reason why I would put The Mummy below Murders in the Room Morgue is because there are long parts of this movie that I get very bored at. Yeah. Whereas in Room Morgue, there are parts that I'm just like, what the fuck did I just see? <laughs> Into what the fuck am I seeing? Right. <laughs> right? When it's like... good or bad, either way it's engaged you, whereas you're kind of <laughs> not engaged by this. Yeah. Hmm. I do see where you're coming from with your argument about Genuina and comparing The Mummy so I feel like I would be comfortable with this going above Genuina, below Murders in the Vimorg. Okay. So what about sort of what I was saying about the mummy being like a more competent whole uh, as a piece? Uh, do you feel like the daringness of Murders in the Vimorg kind of overshadows that then? I forget what episode, but we, I think it was you actually, described the um, whiplash tonally in Murders in the Remorgue as trying to distract you from yeah. the horrors that we saw. Which it's like, don't do that in your horror movie. <laughs> but that at least felt more like horror to me okay. than this. Like, this is like freaky and there's elements of horror and um, there are parts that I'm just kind of like, ooh. But I'm not like freaking out about it, right? So even though as a whole it's more competent, it's more holistic, mm -hmm. it's still that middle of the road. And I, I because horror as a genre is about um like we've talked about how previous films have tried to like push boundaries in different ways and horror is about kind of like testing the waters of what is too transgressive to show us, what is too shocking. And when you have something that's so middle of the road, it's just like, I see why it's a horror movie, but why do I care that it's a horror movie? Like, it, I know that that sounds really dismissive, and, like, that makes it sound like this is a bad movie, and, like, this is a fairly good movie. Like, it's a fine enough movie, but in speaking, like, at a philosophical level about how they are developing the genre, how are they um, depicting the genre and communicating the horrors that are within... Murders in the Room Morgue does a more daring job than the competent middle-of-the-road storytelling in The Mummy. You know what? This just came to me. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about uh, the last few movies. I've kind of continually mentioned things like, oh yeah, and then after the production code was enforced, these scenes got cut, right? Like, Murders in the Room Morgue had a bunch of stuff cut out of it. Uh, Dr. X had a bunch of stuff cut out of it. We talked about how we couldn't even imagine the ending of the old Dark House working if it had been made after 1934. Yeah. The Mummy feels like you could have released it after 1934, after the production code, and have basically no cuts. Right? Like, it's still a horror movie. It's got scary stuff in it. But, yeah, it doesn't have the transgressiveness. It doesn't have the bite. Yeah. For sure. It feels very Saturday morning, in a way. Yeah. Alright, so I think I can come to agree with that. So, entering the list at number 20 
on our list, which has 41 entries in it now, which basically puts The Mummy just above middle of the road. <laughs> um, like, essentially the midpoint in the list is divided between The Mummy and Genuina now. Uh, if you're below Genuina, you're bad. If you're above The Mummy, you're good. <laughs> um, entering the list at number 20, The Mummy, 1932, directed by Carl Freund. If you would like to see this list, you can see it at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find previous episodes, our YouTube playlists, so you can check out some of the other films that we've watched. And there's also an appeal or suggest box. You can submit films that you would like us to review uh, that we will get to eventually. You can submit your case for why The Mummy deserves to be higher or lower in the list. I would love to hear from you. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can contact us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on iTunes and SoundCloud. We are also available on any podcatcher apps that are attached to those services. Uh, you can link to our RSS feed and pretty much get us anywhere. We appreciate comments you could leave on SoundCloud or reviews you can leave on iTunes. Those help people find the show. Additionally, as we continue to move forward in time through these movies, if you think we've maybe missed a film, mm -hmm. um, you can suggest it to us. There might be a reason we've skipped a film. Maybe we didn't feel it fit in the horror genre, or maybe we just couldn't find any copies of it. Another great way to help the show is to tell people about it if you've got any friends who you think might be interested in a podcast on classic horror film, uh, you know, certainly let them know whether their interest is horror, whether their interest is classic film, even whether their interest is history. I feel like this podcast covers a lot of history bases sometimes. Yeah. So what are we watching next week, Ben? We've got a real treat next week, Sarah. Okay. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, it's Paramount's second entry into the genre after Jekyll and Hyde. It is 1932's Island of Lost Souls, directed by Earl C. Kenton, starring Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi. Great. I love to see Charles Lawton. <sighs> we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!